Key, 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 ma, 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 and welcome to the Disenfranchised Podcast, where that podcast all about those franchises of one, those films that fancy themselves full-fledged franchises before falling flat on their face after the first film. I am your host, Stephen Foxworthy, and that guy over there with the menacing hockey mask, well, that's my co-host, Brett Wright. Hi, Brett. Hi, Stephen. Happy Friday to you. Uh, happy Friday the 13th to you as well, sir. It's it's a holiday that we certainly recognize uh, and to join us talking about this uh, very special day, uh, we have invited back to the podcast our very good friend. Uh, you might know him from the Psychoanalysis Horror Therapy Podcast or the Pod and the Pendulum, or if this is the only podcast you listen to, hi, Mom, uh, then you might know him from our episode on My Bloody Valentine. It's Mike Snoonian. Hey, Mike. Steven, I'd also like to say hello to your mom. <laughs> Lovely lady. So I am wearing my short shorts and my camp t-shirt. I am ready to go. It's a awesome. pleasure to be back. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming back. It's always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. And uh, of course, we, we can't be talking about anything but uh, the horror classic. Brett, what are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about the 2009 remake of Friday the 13th. Ah, yes, that's right. The 2009 remake of Friday the 13th, starring Jared Padalecki, Danielle Panabaker, Amanda Rigetti, Travis Van Winkle, Aaron Yu, Derek Mears, Jonathan Sadowski, Juliana Guillo, Ben Feldman, Ryan Hansen, Willa Ford, and a few others, uh, directed by Marcus Nispel and written by uh, Damian Shannon and Mark Swift. Uh, this was, uh, this was uh, an interesting watch. The Friday the 13th franchise, long-running franchise, this, of course, uh, part of the 2000s run of attempts to revamp, remake, and revitalize old horror franchises. Uh, what are your guys' histories with the Friday the 13th franchise? Mike, we'll let you go first. Sure. Um, so I'm a child of the 80s. Um, you know, I grew up like elementary school through early high school throughout the 80s, and then high school. If I'm allowed to go a little bit blue here, um, sure. the Friday the 13th series has special place in my heart because after taking a date to see Jason goes to hell the final Friday, um, I lost my virginity. Hey. So special place in my heart. Um, and I've always enjoyed it. Like out of all the slashers, like, you know, Elm Street is my favorite series overall. Um, Halloween is obviously a masterpiece. And my take on the Friday the 13th films, aside from the ones at the top, like part four and six, and the one way at the bottom, which is Jason Takes Manhattan, <laughs> it's kind of like the Five Guys Burgers franchise of horror movie franchises in that, like, they're all pretty good. You know what I mean? Like, you're going to find something, like, none of them are masterpieces. Like, none of them are classics of cinema. But you know what you're going to get. You go into it for that burger and fry experience. Um, 
I had a cousin growing up when I couldn't watch these who claimed to have seen them all. And he would tell me what was in each movie and he made everything up. So he was a lying bastard. Um, <laughs> and I came to like watch these out of order. Um, and, you know, they're just fun. It's impossible to not have a good time watching the majority of these movies, even the ones that are quote unquote terrible. I think we all knew someone like your cousin who would claim to have seen every movie and would just yeah. make crap up every time you, you really pressed them on yeah. it. Yeah. Jason had a baby. Jason was <laughs> running around a hospital yelling at people. <laughs> the you idea know. of Jason yelling is just hilarious to me. He's like one of two, three classically mute horror mm-hmm. slashers. So, yeah. I mean, you know, something scary about the big lumbering guy who doesn't say anything. No. Uh, Brett, what's your history with this franchise? Speaking of big lumbering guys that don't really say much, I um I I grew up more with Halloween, uh, but Friday the Thirteenth was probably second. Um, and I didn't really watch all of them either growing up. I I remember watching the first one and loving it, and not really following up after that. Uh, I was way more into being obsessed with Halloween and what it was doing. Um, but once I got more into horror later on in life, I of course watched all of them. And and, and Mike's right. Like there's there isn't a really, I mean, there isn't a bad, bad one. There's something enjoyable in all of them, even the worst one, which which is Jason takes Manhattan. Um yeah. you know, when he when he takes off his mask to frighten the thugs away. That's I mean, that's just that's a great <laughs> scene. So yeah, all of them have something to enjoy, even this remake. Uh, I came to this franchise, like most horror franchises, fairly late. Uh, Last year, uh, during quarantine, I decided to just watch as many film franchises as I possibly could. And so I embarked on this experiment to watch the Friday the 13th movies and the Nightmare on Elm Street movies all chronologically, like interspersing them in between each other, just to see how those movies dialogue with each other. Uh, it turns out they don't dialogue with each other at all. Uh, there's absolutely nothing that those movies are saying to one another. But, you know, I thought I had something uh, going. I, I did not. Um, but I watched those kind of movies back to back. And I found I I think I enjoy I'm not a big slasher fan in general. I think I mentioned that on the uh, My Bloody Valentine episode that we we recorded together. But I slasher is not really my thing. But I. I don't know, I, and I would say probably of the three major slashers, um, Michael Myers, Freddie, and Jason. Jason's probably my least favorite. The Friday the 13th franchise, probably my least favorite. Um, I'm one of those weird people that likes Seven the best. I think Seven is the best one of those movies, which is the Jason versus Carrie uh, one. Uh, there's a couple pretty good kills in that. And I like the idea of a, of a female protagonist um, like take charge and, and kind of beating Jason at his own game. I like the idea behind that, but I mean, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the weird guy. There are a number of these. I don't like when I first watched the original Friday, the 13th, um, I didn't like it at all. Hmm. Um, I think I gave it like one and a half stars. Uh, and then I saw it. Yeah, I know it was, was, I was not a fan. Um, and then I watched it in a drive-in, uh, and I liked it a lot better. I think that kind of atmosphere was much more conducive to watching that movie. Hmm than you know oh, yeah. sitting sitting on my couch on like a wednesday night or whatever so i i had a much better time with it uh this that second watch through um actually the the first time i watched it brett almost like disavowed my, our friendship altogether yeah we, did, we didn't talk for a week because he he told me 
that he, it was only like one and a half stars and he thought it was terrible. I was like, I, I was, yeah, I got so mad. I didn't talk to him for a week. Well, it's funny because Halloween gets the credit for really starting the slasher boom. Right. Right. And then this movie comes out. Oh, well, the original Friday the 13th comes out in 1980. Mm-hmm. And Victor Miller is very upfront saying, I took basically the script for Halloween, changed the setting and kind of copied all the beats from it. Um, but what they add is like more creative kills and gore. And you could say that Friday the 13th, like the 1980 movie, is much more influential as a slasher movie than Halloween is because of all the slashers that follow don't really follow Carpenter's suspense template. They follow the more blood, more gore, more sex and nudity template. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And you can, I mean, you see that even in Halloween too, which Carpenter yes. himself admits like they had to kind of gore up just to be able to compete with Friday the 13th, mm-hmm. uh, which, which I always find really interesting yeah. that Carpenter's like, well, I guess we can't beat him. So we might as well join yeah. him and, and kind of throws his hat in there. Much to the detriment of the remainder of the Halloween series. Yeah. I would agree with that. Having watched that franchise last year as well, I would, I would probably agree with that sentiment mm-hmm. as well. Definitely. So um, I'm going to rely on you guys a little more for this because I'm not uh, the, mm-hmm. the deep horror guy, but do you guys have uh, kind of any knowledge about maybe the history of the Friday, the 13th franchise? We've kind of already dipped our toes into it a little bit. Uh, it's kind of a, a riff on John Carpenter's Halloween, but kind mm-hmm. of the, the origins and evolutions of the franchise. So it was essentially your producer, Sean S. Cunningham, seeing the success of Halloween and Cunningham had made a number of kind of like family comedies. Um, one of them, I think here be here come the tigers. It was kind of a rip off of the bad news bears. He'd actually been involved with West. I think he had produced last house on the left mm. with Wes mm. Craven. Um, it was never meant to be a franchise. And I think, you know, that's, he was the big coup they got was they got Tom Savini and Tom Savini just went through his, his toolkit and basically created these iconic kills. And then you have like, they wanted at the end of the movie, Carrie had come out a couple years before and they're like, we need the Carrie stinger at the end, which is where you get Jason. But as far as they were concerned, Jason was like a dead kid. Like he wasn't meant to be this iconic slasher. And then just what happened was like, this movie made a ton of money. Like it cost half a million dollars to make. It made like 30 something million in $1980. Um, So Paramount just kept chugging them out. Like just putting them out more and more and more because they didn't cost anything and they made a ton of money. You know, in the first four movies, when you watch them, they form a kind of a neat little quadrology, I would say, because um, they do try to follow a little bit of a story, even if it doesn't quite make sense. And the first four are pretty great little slashers. Uh, and then you get to like six, which I would say is the first really remake or reboot of the series mm-hmm. with Tom McGoughlin. And I think we'll talk about that maybe when we talk about this movie. Mm-hmm. They just kept trying to one up themselves. And there's not a big story, except that the producer, Frank Mancuso, was like, they keep making money, keep putting them out. Um, And Paramount kept doing it, but they were always embarrassed by the series. And honestly, you can kind of tell. 
Um, it, it's not, it doesn't really feel like they're putting a lot of effort or a lot of, uh, even production value into particularly a lot of those later entries. Mm-hmm. Like they feel kind of very wing and a prayer kind of films. Yeah. Um, what can we do? You know, I know part seven, which is your favorite, right? The original idea was like, that would be the movie that crossed over with a nightmare on Elm street. Mm-hmm. Um, people have been talking about Freddy versus Jason since like the late eighties and paramount approached Bob Shea in New Line Cinema and said, what do you think crossing over? And it was just after um, the Dream Master had come out, which was the more successful than any of the Friday the 13th movies. Like it made something like 40 something million dollars on mm. a couple million dollar budget. And by this point, Friday the 13th movies are making like less than $20 million dollars. And they're like, you're out of your mind. Like, if you think we're going to give you like a 50-50 split on a dying franchise, like, thanks, but no thank you. Um, So that's when they had the idea, okay, if we can't get Freddy, let's do Carrie. Um, And that's when Kane Hodder becomes Jason. I know that he is the fan favorite. Um, Not my favorite Jason. I was was about to ask if you had a favorite Jason. And he's good, but um, I probably would say Ted White in part four. Okay, um, and then maybe Derek Mears in the remake. Hmm. He's a phenomenal J. I think it's it's criminal that he has not had the opportunity to play Jason in more movies. It's criminal because I think he is far well, far and away the best thing about this movie. Yeah, I think I think his portrayal is is good. He he eschews some of the more stereotypical elements of Jason, like the, the slow moving lumbering. I mean, there are moments in this movie where he is just full on sprinting at these kids and getting ready to hack them to pieces. But that's part two, part three and part four, Jason. Mm-hmm. Like Which there are this movie is very of, indebted to. Yeah. There are scenes like in part four, like part four, Jason comes like tearing ass out of a house mm. and people forgets not to get to part six, that you get zombie Jason. And then really when Kane Hodder takes the role over that you get like the lumbering Jason. I mean, look, Jason, Jason had been resurrected over and over again. He's going to become mm-hmm. a little slower over time. You know, that makes sense. We all are, man. You know, <laughs> I'm in my forties. I can barely move, you yeah, know, and I, we haven't even died multiple times. So oh. <laughs> that's awesome. Everything um, hurts. It, oh, tell me uh, about that. Don't get old, kids. Um, And Brett, I know you had some information about kind of the, uh, I don't know if you want to get into that now, kind of the legal uh, ramification, maybe why we haven't seen Derek Mears reprise his role as Jason in in several, in in anything. Yeah, I mean, there's the whole Sean Cunningham versus Victor Miller legal battle, uh, who actually owns the rights and, you know, who actually did create Jason and who didn't and They've been embroiled in this legal battle for for years off and on. It looks like it might actually be coming to an end or might have. It was going to at the beginning of this year, but then one of the judges died, Mm. oddly enough. Um, So that put it on hold for a little bit. But uh, yeah, uh, it's kept all of the remake um, rumors, the reboot rumors in check. Uh, it got the video game shut down, which was a real shame. Uh, yeah, it, it sucks. So so who who do we credit with? I mean, who should? Maybe that's the question. Who should we credit with authorship of Jason? I mean, that's, uh, real t- that's tough, right? Like, I, I'd almost say Tom Savini. 
to be quite Ooh. honest, because he came up with the look like, you know, he's famous for saying in, in a very insensitive way, you know, I wanted to make him a mongoloid, you know, which is like, mm. Ooh, Tom, yeah, Tom, Tom, yikes. Ooh. Um, <laughs> yikes. Um, but he was, I think, you know, because he, and I think I, I would say that I would credit Tom Savini because of creating that look, but also I think Victor Miller's script, you know, I think that he having that stinger at the end of it, I mean, Cunningham was famous for saying he hated that Jason became part of the franchise after. And he really hated the mask. A matter of fact, like we interviewed uh, Adam Marcus, the director of Jason Goes to Hell, one of the more fun interviews I've ever done. And he said this in other places as well. He's like, the, when I got hired, um, the first thing that Sean told me was like, get him out of the fucking mask. And Cunningham denies that, but I, I tend to believe Adam Marcus. He's like, you do whatever you want, get him out of the mask. Um, if you want, I'm going to pitch my partner here a little bit. Lindsay Travis has yeah. a wonderful write-up on the lawsuit. Uh, Lindsay's a practicing lawyer herself in Canada. Okay. Oh, and she's perfect. like phenomenal about writing about legal issues in, in entertainment. Um, the future of horror hinges on the Friday the 13th lawsuit. It's an editorial on certifiedforgotten.com. Uh, also, Larry Zerner, who plays Shelley in part three, is now an entertainment lawyer. Um, if you look up Larry Zerner, uh, he's done a number of interviews and videos on the lawsuit. Um, and it comes down to greed. I mean, really, it comes down to Miller, you know, Cunningham saying that Miller was a writer for hire and that was it. He would never should have had authorship of anything else. And Miller and honestly, judges siding with Miller saying Nope, he's responsible for creating this character. He's entitled to a fair share of the profits and he's entitled to to compensation on anything going forward. And it seems like that's been decided over and over, but as you know, anything in litigation can go to um you know, go to appeal. Mm -hmm. And that is ends up what's happening. And I think the idea now is like at one point Cunningham could use he could he could use Friday the thirteenth, but he couldn't use Jason in America, but maybe in Europe, and it just it made it weird, basically. Hmm. I mean, they do both get. I mean, for for what I mean, you good or ill, they both do get credit on this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, Victor Miller as uh, based uh, based on characters created by, yeah. and then uh, Cunningham is a producer on the two thousand nine mm -hmm. remake. So I mean, they do both get their their fair yeah. share of the money, at least on this movie, but. Obviously, going forward, that's going to be a, a major issue. Yeah, going forward, it's like a hundred million dollar movie every time. You know, it's a movie that doesn't cost a lot to make, but it's going to clear a hundred million dollars every time one comes out. Um, and it's sad. I mean, it really, you have two guys in their 70s and one mm -hmm. of them is just refusing to give up anything. And it's like you're you're squabbling over who's going to make the most millions. And that's what's really at that age too yeah at that like age you, you can't take it with you so yeah. Yeah, yeah but you could probably get buried with it but I mean, <laughs> uh, sure sure <laughs> yeah no i mean you're not wrong you absolutely could I mean, I why would you want it, to i don't know i but. have it in my will that when i die um you know those like chambers that shoot money up and you can grab them Yes, like that's what I'm actually going to be buried in, and in perpetuity, there's going to be just like bills like shooting around <laughs> me, and I'm going to be on display like Lenin's corpse in Russia. So that's, I am looking forward to my death solely for that reason. What a dream, man! Yeah. What 
That's that's insane. I love that. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely incredible. Here lies Mike Snoonian. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, I mean, I'll be wearing boxers, nothing but boxer shorts. Love it. L- perfect. He's not absolutely really lying. Uh, here, nope. here stands Mike Snoonian. Yes. Here rests. <laughs> here rests Mike Snoonian. There you go. He, Surrounded by his millions. Surrounded Died by his as he lives, being ridiculous. <laughs> I love it. There's one other thing I do want to discuss a little bit before we get into this movie proper, and that is just the slew of horror remakes that were going on in the early mm-hmm. in, in the 2000s, just like throughout the decade. Um, I I think it starts even before the 2000s with like House on Haunted Hill and 13 Ghosts, like those mm-hmm. William Castle remakes. But then you start getting into like... Um, I think it the the first major one, and correct me if I'm wrong, is um, Texas Chainsaw Texas Massacre. Chainsaw Massacre. Yes, thank you. It was right on the tip of my tongue, and I wanted to keep mm-hmm. saying Leatherface, and I knew that yep. was wrong. But that's like the first one that kind of kicks yeah. off, and and then everyone goes, "Oh, there's money in this." Mm-hmm. And so then the next thing you know, all we see are these horror remakes. For honestly, there was the Grudge remake was just last year, which I'm kind mm-hmm. of a sequel. But still, like, they're still doing it. Yeah. Like, absolutely insane. Like, what what is it about this era of horror that kind of lends itself to the, the, the constant remake? Is it just that there aren't any good ideas left in Hollywood? Or mm-hmm. is this kind of the thing that kickstarts, like, the IP craze, where everyone is trying to gobble up as much IP as they possibly mm-hmm. can so they can keep remaking and sequelizing everything? Mm-hmm. I, it's weird, because, like like right after this era is when when we start to really hit the stride of like the ghost house that we're still kind of in now right like like they tried to reboot all the slashers and like well i guess that didn't really work let's do ghosts now so yeah i don't know maybe maybe they had run out of ideas and there was like a gap of like well we don't know what to do with horror right now let's try to revisit the past mm-hmm. what well, i mean these there are these i don't know like cyclical almost trends that kind of come about in horror like, and it, it stems from whatever thing is popular at the time. Like when Wes Craven does Scream, like you get these waves of slasher movies. In, I mean, that leak their way into other slashers that are trying to outdo Scream in the same way. I, I think particularly of the, the Halloween, the Miramax mm-hmm. Halloween era. Uh, that kind of borrows very heavily from what Scream is doing. And part of it is because Scream is Miramax, Halloween is Miramax. Obviously, we have to kind of copy this trend across across the company. Um, but then, I mean, once these remakes start popping up, they're they're everywhere. But then in, on top of that, you see other kind of trends sneaking in, like um, like the torture gore thing with the Hills Have Eyes remake and the Hills Have Eyes 2 remake. Uh, you know, very indebted to that kind of torture gore thing that comes about with Saw and uh, the Hostel films. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. I, it's you the, see the odd, weird overlap there. The odds are a fascinating time. Like the two post nine eleven, and I wrote about this for We Are Horror, the We Are Horror Zine, examining horror after nine eleven, mm. where it becomes very introspective is the wrong word but you're seeing these movies like you mentioned like the rise of like saw you're looking at the rise of like the splat pack where you have like rob zombie and eli roth you have cabin fever in hostel you have australian films like wolf creek which are 
violent in a way that is far more extreme, um, far gorier, and far more intense and in the audience face than these 80s slasher movies are. Is and part of the reason was like the 80s slashers are notorious for being like chopped by the MPAA. Mm-hmm. Um, but another part of the reason is that it, it was a way to kind of examine where we were at that point in our history saying, you know, because you had shows like 24 that were like rah-rah patriotism and jingoism. And you have like Jack Bauer, like cutting off heads on television. And you're like, yes, just let the man do his job. <laughs> and then you have these horror movies that are saying, well, look at what's actually happening here. Like this is not too far removed from what we're seeing going on in Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib. And we have like the Daniel Pearl video that is, broadcast where a journalist had his was executed uh, and beheaded um and it was a way to kind of examine our feelings about that and i think that the slasher rebirth was also this kind of like response to that like oh look how much more extreme we can be and also we have a built-in audience like you have platinum dunes is the company behind most of these they bought up like brad fuller and Michael Bay like brought up bought up the rights to most of these because they had been sitting dormant because you know the Friday the Thirteenth movies were dead by that point. Um, they tried kind of rebooting what they did with Jason X and Poke Scream, and it sat on a shelf and then made next to nothing. Um, ironically, the same year the Texas Chainsaw remake comes out is when you have Freddy versus Jason, also scripted by Shannon Swift. And that's a huge success. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that like there's nostalgia here. People do want to see these movies, but we need to do something new with them. We need to start over. And maybe you have a generation that like they want their just like Hammer did horror like two decades after Universal did. They did Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy and werewolves. There are going to be these periods of nostalgia and this this idea that like we can capitalize on that nostalgia and we can just kind of rejigger these icons a bit so that they're fit for this new generation. Like I think it would be hard to do an 80s style slasher given the national mood in like 2003 to 2010. Which, I mean, that does make very good sense, uh, which is why this for, as for all the slasher tropes that it does have, doesn't feel a lot like a slasher. Um, it, it's got a very different, feeling to it like jason is not uh, this undead child so much as he is a kind of rugged backwoods survivalist Mm -hmm. right so i mean it's it's not only it's not only kind of repackaging but also redefining what the character is for a completely new generation um and then what you know how we feel about it then determines whether or not the franchise is able to continue really Mm -hmm. That's why I think this this remake works better than any of the other ones that they tried to make around this time because they reinvented the character in a way that made sense mm-hmm. as opposed to what like Rob Zombie did with Halloween or uh, what they tried to do with Freddy for the remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. Like they stayed true to the original idea but invented it in a new and fresh way. And I think that's why this Ooh. one should have been successful and but it still wasn't, unfortunately. Not as successful as it yeah probably could have been and i think part of that is because 2009 honestly kind of becomes critical mass for this kind of remake i mean the same year this movie comes out you have our children of the corn remake 
made for TV, but still you've got Mm -hmm. the last house on the left remake, my bloody Valentine 3d sorority row. There's like just a slew of these that are coming out this year. And then the next year you've got the nightmare on Elm street remake, the crazies remake. I spit on your grave, uh, piranha 3d. Like these, Mm -hmm. these remakes are coming fast and furious at this point to the point where I think people are just kind of like, Oh, they're just redoing this again. Do I really need to go see this one? And so it becomes the people that are seeing it are the ones that are big fans of the thing. Yeah. Which I mean, ultimately doesn't spell good box office because you want something that's going to be a crossover hit, not just Mm -hmm. for the fans ultimately. Well, it is. I mean, this movie pulls in nearly a hundred million dollars on 65, I think. Yeah. Not in about like 95 when you add in like the international and that's before you sell a DVD or you sell a Blu-ray or you sell streaming rights or cable rights. So I think what happened with this movie is when you look at what happened with the box office, it came out and it set records in terms of like an R rated slasher movie. Like mm. it had a massive opening of like 50, almost $50 million, if not, maybe even a little more. And it was like, Holy crap. Like there, there are legs in this thing. Like this, this is picking up steam right here. And then the next week, it has an 85% drop, which typically you hope for 50% or less when a movie hits its second weekend, 85% is like catastrophic. And I think that at that point, Platinum Dunes panics. And I, you know, I think it's maybe important to note that like is popular, like there are only so many people that will go to a Friday the 13th movie. Like it has a large and rabid fan base. But I would say the fan base for something like this is more limited to like what you said, Brett, like, oh, it's ghost season. More people would go see a movie that has like ghostly or supernatural undertones to it because the idea of like a mass killer slaughtering co-eds um, doesn't have the same appeal to like your typical Friday night going to the movies audience. No, and I, I definitely think there's something to that. And, you know, it, yeah, this thing kind of falls out of fashion. Um, so we're we're really chasing a trend rather than trying to set a trend. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and we've talked on this show before a lot about how reactionary Hollywood tends to be. Like, this is the thing that's making money. So we're all going to do this until it stops making money. And then we switch and try the other thing. So mm-hmm. it, it's all it's all kind of a reactionary sort of trial and error until the goodwill essentially runs out. And I think this was coming right around a time where I think the goodwill for particularly the slasher remakes was starting to run a little dry. Oh, yeah. And and I think the, the ultimate box office returns, which we will mm-hmm. get into in a lot more detail later on in the episode, ultimately kind of let us know that that is the case. And with that table setting taken care of, I think it's time, gentlemen, to start talking about this movie in earnest. Uh, And to do that, we always start with the plot in 60 seconds. That's where we take uh, just a scant minute to recount the plot of the entire film. And and Mike, as our guest, you have graciously, um, if, if not trepidatiously, volunteered uh, to to recount the plot of the 2009 Friday the 13th remake for us. Um, whenever you are ready, I will start your time, sir. Ready? Okay. All right. We enter with a group of teens and are in the woods. They've gone to find weed and fucked. Uh, two of the teens go exploring and bad shit happens to them. Uh, the other teen finds his weed but gets killed. Uh, the other two teens fuck and there are some fantastic fake boobies and then they all die um jason comes out from under the boards and then jason is hacking and slashing and we go to our title screen 
cut to another group of teens that are going to the woods to fuck, but this time they're doing it in classy accommodations of Trent. Trent is an asshole. We see the supernatural brother that is super soulful. He can't find his sister, who is the not dead one from part one. There's more boobies. There's more fucking. There's more death. Everyone dies in the end. Jason gets thrown through a wood chipper Fargo style. Go to hell, Jason. And then uh, he pops up at the end of the movie. Um, oh, and then Supernatural Dude had found his sister and then they survive and everyone else dies. That's it. That's all. I that's do. time. Well done, sir. I am impressed. That was that was an impressive, impressive display of plot in 60 seconds, right? Like right on the nugget. Oh, there is so little plot in this movie. You know You're what I mean? not it wrong at all. It It is essentially boobs and sex and death. Yes. That's mm-hmm. the entirety of this movie for good or ill. And they managed to make it grim. That's mm-hmm. what's fascinating about this movie. It's like we're here to show like as many boobs as possible mm-hmm. to have kids get stoned as possible and to have kids like get fucked up as possible and have them die in glorious ways. And it's like grim dark. It's like the dark night of Friday the 13th movies. It really is. That's I think that's an interesting way to, to put it. Um, plot wise, it also is really indebted to the first four Friday the 13th yes. movies, that, that really tight quadrilogy. There mm-hmm. are really elements that it's borrowing mm-hmm. from all of those films, mm-hmm. uh, including like the very opening scene, which is essentially the end of the first Friday the 13th movie, mm-hmm. which, which begs the question, I guess, and set in 1980 as well, which begs the question, is this a sequel or a remake or a reboot? Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. It is all of those and none of those at the same time. Okay, fair enough. Um, and I mean, I, I tend to lean probably away from sequel, probably more mm-hmm. reboot remake yeah. territory as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I don't know the yeah. fact that they set that opening scene in 1980 mm-hmm. and you cast Kira Norris herself, Nana Visitor, as Pamela Voorhees, mm-hmm. who we show they show is, in fact, the one who's killed all of Camp Crystal Lake. You're essentially starting this movie at the end of the original film. Yes. Which I thought was great. Honestly, yeah. I thought it was fantastic. That's all you needed to know from the original movie, really. And it's, it, it, I, I, yeah, I loved it. I love that part. And I'm always up for Nana Visitor getting more work because, quite frankly, I think she's really undervalued as a performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Deep Space Nine might be my favorite Trek series, controversially. Uh, and I think she's a big part of why. So mm-hmm. when I heard that she was cast as Pamela Voorhees in this movie, I was very excited. When I finally saw this movie for the first time, I was kind of bummed she didn't have more to do. But I think what she does get to do is really fantastic. Yeah, they don't give her a lot. You know, she's in, she's out. She's not as big of a deal. I, I wish that she had at least gotten some more like voiceover lines of her talking to Jason in his head. They really intersperse it throughout. And I think most of it's played like really quietly, like under the soundtrack kind of stuff. But I mean, you do catch snippets of it here and there throughout the throughout the film. Oh, I, I did not. So that's that's cool. That's cool to know. I never got any of it. And, you know, they also have the uh, the kids at the beginning end up finding her uh, severed, desiccated head in, in the bathtub, which is, of course, very similar to how we find Pamela Voorhees' head in the second film. Mm-hmm. Only I think it's in a barn in the second film, if I'm not mistaken. It's been it's a, in the shack. Yeah, it's in the shack. shack. OK, yeah. yeah. So similar placement, but, you know, or at least kind of a similar idea for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get the um, obviously the kids partying in the house is pretty much all of Friday the 13th part four 
I mean, that's that's really what Friday the 13th Part 4 is. And, oh, there's uh, there's actual cabins not far from right. where Camp Crystal Lake is. Right. And you even have a guy who, if he's not hunting Jason, he's, like, trying to find slash avenge his sister, much right. like Rob in Part 4. Which, the interesting about Part 4 in Rob is Part 3 and Part 4 are base. I think Part 2, 3, and 4 are meant to take place basically over like a weekend, like mm. one leads right into the other. So Rob is like out to avenge his sister's death. She is one of the counselors, I think, that die in part two. So how does he know all this about Jason? Like who, do you know what I mean? Like that's yeah. kind of what I mean, like 80, like Paramount and 80s movies. Like not a lot of thought went into you know, this is not the Marvel universe in terms of like <laughs> plotting things out on a tight basis they needed their own kevin feige really is what it is yeah but and i mean um well they had michael bay but you know <laughs> that's true michael bay is a credited producer on this movie yeah. but something tells me it's kind of one of those in name only I, like we'll put your name on it so we can get this mm-hmm. thing made and then you get some of the profits kind of a deal yeah. uh, and i mean to his credit clay seems to know very little about anything in this movie yes. uh the, the supernatural boy um, he he kind of doesn't really know what's going on. Uh, one thing I think this movie might suffer from, and Mike, I don't know if you would agree with me on this or not. I know you're a big fan of Crazy Ralph. Oh, uh, I yeah. think you mentioned that on our My Bloody Valentine episode. Oh, yeah. I ride or die for Crazy Ralph. There's no crazy. No, I mean, you can make the argument maybe the, the lady in the house that he visits, mm-hmm. but there's no Crazy Ralph analog well, in this movie. A big problem with this movie, and it's directed by Marcus Nispel, who, you know, directed the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. Um, And for my complicated feelings about that movie, he was probably the right person for that. He had done a pretty good job. Texas Chainsaw and Friday the 13th are two far different types of movies. Mm -hmm. And what you see here is like you see the town, the limited townspeople you see, like they're kind of in on what's going on. And it has that kind of like redneck feel. Um, and that's not what Friday the 13th is like you go back and you watch the original Friday the 13th series and it's light and it's fun. And part of the reason like why, especially those early movies work so well is um, you like the kids. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you see yourself as those camp counselors, like you see them playing strip monopoly and going to the bars and, you know, having a good fucking time and you like to spend time with them. And it's like a light, fun movie. And I think Shannon and Swift, you know, they get what works in a Friday the 13th movie. I would like to see this same script done, but with a different, like the directorial tone, like the tone that Nispel brings to it, the tone that Steven Jablotsky's score brings to it makes it feel so much darker than i think what like shannon and swift were going for and you i mean there are elements in this that are just like the peak of like almost riffing on kind of the fun goofy 80s ridiculousness like um the entire sex scene between uh trent and um Mm -hmm. oh what's her name um your tits are stupendous uh, yep. perfect nipple placement like all that just ridiculous dialogue um the stuff with uh ryan hansen and willa ford in the lake mm-hmm. like all of that has this kind of ridiculous 
feel to it. I mean, Ryan Hansen getting pegged in the head with uh, with an arrow is pretty much a laugh beat. Oh, yeah. Like it's it's pretty much the height of, of hilariousness mm-hmm. when it comes to teen deaths. Which is even, it's, even funnier when you realize that you, you saw in Jason's cabin that he had an archery trophy. Oh, I didn't even realize <laughs> that. That's hilarious. Yeah, they, they see a couple of trophies that he had won from camp and one of them is an archery trophy. Oh, that's really funny. That's wonderful. <laughs> it's, and, it's that kind of attention to detail. Never mind. Five stars. Perfect movie. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of the air when, when Ryan Hansen's Nolan is killed off, like a lot of that lighter tone is killed off at that yes. point. Um, that's Ryan ultimately Hansen what Ryan Hansen just, brings to the brings yeah. to movies like this. You know, like when he's like, you know, the funny thing is, like as soon as he said, "Don't take my boat," what does it say about me that I knew I was going to take his boat? You know, like that's good shit. Yeah, you know, and I mean, uh, and and I think a lot of the goodwill you have for the characters kind of dies off with it. Like they try to do uh, similar kind of things with uh, with the other two guys who aren't Trent. The names of the characters, uh, Chewy, I think, is the is one of them. Who's the other guy? I'm going to find his name here. Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you try to get some fun stuff with them, like getting stoned and then yeah. getting killed. But ultimately, I think that stuff kind of falls flat. Like you need someone yeah. like Ryan Hansen to to kind of yeah. bridge that tension and kind of ride yeah. that wire. And part of it, I find stoners like really annoying. Like when your whole personality is I get stoned, like that's literally Chewie's personality. My 100%. personality is I get stoned. That's that dude's annoying. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like, I did like, and I appreciate like Lawrence going out to find his friend. Mm-hmm. Like that, I like. He's like, no, like my buddy's out there. You're saying it's like that was actually a pretty cool beat. Um, I love, and I saw this at a, a preview screening of it um, in Boston, like about like three or four days before it opened, and the crowd was like pumped for this movie totally sold out preview screening the first 20 minutes of this movie perfect absolute slasher perfection Mm -hmm. um the kids are kind of assholes but you like them i think you like them more than the group you meet later on oh Um, you know like they are and they're just total archetypes like the kind of like cute and sweet couple the fucking horn dog couple and like the stoner dude who is more than going on than just being a stoner. Do you know what I mean? Like he's right. this hyperactive dude. I love them. And I, I was watching this, rewatching this today. And my wife was watching it with me and being like, this movie is really dumb. You're like, you're right. It is like, I turned to her, like when the, when the buddy like gets, I think it's when Mike, uh, Mike's friend, Donnie gets up and he's like, when he sees the bra thrown at Mike and he's like, Oh, I'm going to get up and go now. I'm like that right there is a good friend. Mm-hmm. You know, he doesn't call like super attention to it. He's like, all right, it's time for me to make my leave. Like, I love that, you know? And if the second group was as much fun as the first group, I think you would have had like a, a little bit stronger movie. And I do like this movie, but I think I find I like it less every time I watch it. There's it, the second group, I think, lacks the balance of archetypes no. that you see in the mm-hmm. first one. No one's really quite as well defined uh, and it seems more defined by tokenism. You've yeah. got the token Asian American, the token African American, the token douchebag, yeah. you know, the token blonde bimbos. Everything's just kind of parsed out, so you you can see immediately exactly where this is going. Yeah. Um. And so there's no 
suspense. There's nothing to kind of draw you in and and mm-hmm. kind of make you root for these characters, which is ultimately the only reason to see a slasher movie because you you want them to overcome the slasher. You know they're not mm-hmm. going to, but you want to see them try. Yeah. yeah. And I don't want and, to see these kids try. Yeah. And it's when you see Trent, you know, I think my wife, she turned to me and said, why is anyone at this kid's place? You know, and also like if he doesn't want them to like do anything, like why is he why are, why did he invite them over? And then you can see it's like, well, rich kid wants to show off, but like mm-hmm. I don't know, man. That's a pretty nice place and all, but the downside is you have to spend a weekend with Trent. Right. And I mean, you 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 absolutely see why his girlfriend just leaves with some other oh, guy, yeah. like what 10 minutes after they get yeah. there. Like I yeah. would too. The guy's a complete asshole yeah. for oh, all intents to, and purposes. To be fair, most women would leave their man for Jared Padalecki. I and uh, my wife has told me. Yeah, my wife has told me. Like if Jared Padalecki ever comes knocking, you know, I already have to wear a Jensen Eccles mask whenever you know we make love. <laughs> um, so you know, but I I'd be left in a heartbeat. So I was going to say, really, her. any of the Winchester men. Uh, yeah. Jensen Eccles, Jed Padalecki, or uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, for that matter. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- th- that's an attractive looking bunch. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, no, I, I completely get it. And yeah. uh, I mean, this is I, I also think it's very interesting. This is one of two 2009 films, uh, two 2009 slasher remakes of mm-hmm. 80s movies featuring a masked killer that star one of yeah. the Winchester brothers, because the other yeah. one you've got is My Bloody Valentine 3D, yeah. which has Jensen Eccles in it. And What's hilarious is, you know, they do, they, you figure they, they figured Supernatural was probably winding down. Mm-hmm. It had been on the air for like five years at that point. And they're like, now we're going to kickstart our movie career. And what do you do? You do a horror movie like Sarah Michelle Geller does The Grudge. And yet we never see a sequel to either of these movies. And Supernatural runs 11 more years yeah, I uh, I watched the first five seasons of Supernatural and I was like, you know what? This is where they wanted to end it. I'm going to tap out. Mm-hmm. And if there, you know, there may be some some episodes down the line that I might mm-hmm. go back and, and watch if they're, you know, people tell me the, what the good ones are, but I'm not going to commit myself to 11 more seasons. And I did. And it eh, it was fine, <laughs> I guess. That Don't ending pull any sucks. punches, Brett. Tell us how you really. That feel. ending really sucked, but we talked about that in our the losers episode. So we that's true. That. We did. We, we did don't got to rehash this again. Mm-hmm. But you know, <laughs> um, I mean, so what do we think about the? I, I guess we we've kind of already talked about kind of our feelings on the cast or at least the characters. But um, I mean, the the cast does have an unusual pedigree. I would say this might be the best cast mm-hmm. of a Friday the Thirteenth movie. Uh, I mean, just in terms, again, of pedigree, you've got Jared Padalecki, Daniel Panabaker, um, Ben Feldman, Ryan Hansen, Willa Ford. I mean, you've got some really strong actors um, in this film, which kind of separates it from most of the other movies in the franchise. I think the biggest actor you have in the first, you know, chunk of the franchise is Kevin Bacon. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, years would not talk about this movie. Oh, yeah. 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 It's it's one of those things like you get your start in kind of a, a weird kind of exploitative slasher movie. I can see why you, if you're trying to be taken seriously as an actor, might want to distance yourself from it. But I think you get older, you lose a little bit of your pretension and you mm-hmm. ah, what the hell? Let's talk about Friday the 13th. Yeah. It's a strong cast overall. Um, I think it continues the trend 
starting with movies like Scream, where you get like television actors that already have like a presence mm-hmm. that are very beautiful. Like the thing of like in, I mean, you go back and watch the early Friday the Thirteenth movies, and obviously like it's a very attractive cast of both men and women, but this kicks it up like a whole other notch. Like starting with Scream, you're getting like insanely attractive people that are seen by millions. And that's part of the reason why, like you don't get a lot of nudity in mm-hmm. horror movies. Cause you have these, like, no, like I'm on a TV show that runs at 8 PM on Fox every week. Like I can't, which is understandable. Like I can't you gotta protect the that, brand. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you get like Jessica Beale and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. You know, it's just an insanely lovely cast going mm. forward in most of these movies and a pretty talented one as well, which is kind of a shame, like, you know, that they don't have more. They don't have more to do overall. Yeah. Uh, and I, I completely agree with that. I, I I think it's a good cast. I think it's by and large a wasted cast, too. Yeah. Uh, cause the, the emotional beats are usually just, ah, and, and kind mm-hmm. of running away. Um, so, you know, I don't know, Brett thoughts on the cast. Uh, it's really mostly just Jared Padalecki and, uh, who plays Jenna, right? Is that her name? Uh, yes. Daniel, Daniel Pennebaker. Pennebaker. Yeah. Daniel Pennebaker. Yeah. It's mostly just those two for most. I mean, I feel like I don't mm-hmm. get to know the other characters enough to care about them. So yeah, yeah that's fair. Yeah. Like I said, criminally underused. Uh, and I mean, Ben Feldman would go on to be in Mad Men and Superstore. Like he's had a, a pretty storied television career after this. Ryan Hansen, of course, known for Veronica Mars. Uh, the, party the, Down. Party Down. I love Party Down. Uh, he had his own like detective show on IMDb TV for a while, mm-hmm. I think, or Facebook. One of those like uh, this website is trying to start its own mm-hmm. streaming service kind of things. Yeah. Uh, the the guy who plays his brother um, on Veronica Mars is in the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street remake the very yes. next year. Yep, which I find really funny. Yeah, Kyle uh, Kyle Rayner, I believe, and yes, he's also in um, a movie coming out called Dinner in America, which is holy shit, one of the best movies I've watched in years. Yeah, not a horror movie, um, more of like an indie rock, punk rock movie. Mm-hmm. Um, soundtrack is amazing he's in kyle he's incredible in pretty much everything he's the only good thing one of the only good things about the elm street remake mm-hmm. um but yeah absolutely love him in dinner in america so when that comes out please everybody see that movie okay he's an actor i i am always excited when he pops up in something yeah. i'm I'm always just i have i have a lot of goodwill for him because of veronica mm-hmm. mars oh i yeah. just like seeing him get work that is yeah. really what it is. So mm-hmm. good. I'm 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 very glad to hear that. And hopefully yeah. that'll that'll help kind of blow some stuff up for him. That'd be really nice. Um let me see what else did I have here. I had a few other notes. That's the bulk of what I have. Did either of you gentlemen mm-hmm. have any um big things to discuss? I know Mike, you had you said you had a couple. We gotta talk Derek Mears, right? We gotta of course talk we about do. Jason himself, you know. Yes, I can't believe I I can't believe I overlooked that. Yes, let's talk Derek. Absolutely. I, you know, so I guess I'll throw it to my host, um, you know, like, how do you think he works as like a Jason Voorhees? What is your opinion of him as Jason? Uh, having less of a, uh, I guess, less experience with Jason probably than the rest of you. I, I like what he does with the character. Obviously, it's not a character that seems to have, it's almost like a silent film character. 
Like everything he does is almost a sort of mime, which I think Derek Mears is particularly well suited to. Um, he's a guy who normally when he shows up in something just because of his size and his stature, he's generally playing some kind of monster. And so he's got this really great physicality about him. And I think he brings a lot of that to bear on this character and he manages to make him very intimidating. I mean, there's something about the slow moving lumbering Jason that is not particularly intimidating. I think I could outrun that Jason and I am a very fat, very out of shape man. I think I could probably outrun Kane Hodder's Jason. Um, But this guy is incredibly strong, incredibly fast and incredibly versatile. Like the kills in this movie are, varied from like chucking an axe at a hundred yards and hitting the guy right in the small of the back to um, plunging a machete under a deck and stabbing a girl right in the head, picking a guy off with an arrow again from probably two or 300 yards. Like the kills in this are really kind of inventive and creative, which is not, again, not something I particularly associate with this franchise compared to maybe some other slasher franchises. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of that's in the writing, but I think Mears is believable in performing all of those kills personally. I think he does a good job. I don't I don't think I'm well-versed enough in Jason to be able to have a favorite, but Derek mm-hmm. Mears would probably be in the running. Mm-hmm. I, as, as a person who would probably say Kane Otter is his favorite, I think Mears is probably second. It, for Obviously for all the reasons you just said, but I, I think that also for those reasons, it, it gives Jason like more humanity i guess is the word i want to go for it it makes him feel more real it because this movie really goes i feel like goes out of its way to really show you that like well he was a a kid that grew up in camp and then has learned to survive off the skills he learned in camp and so from all the different ways that he kills people to just the way that he acts and the physicality just sort of tells that story without having to actually show it to you. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think he does a great job of uh, portraying that. Yeah. I, I love mirrors. I said this earlier, like I have him near the list of top of my Jason's. I would say maybe just like um, Ted white, who is the Jason part four mm-hmm. might be the only one I would rank above him. Like I have hotter, kind of near the bottom of my, like above like a Ken Kersiger from Freddy versus Jason. But like, I'm not a particularly, I think part of it is like Kane Hodder got saddled with like some of the lesser Friday the 13th movies. Um, So that probably affects my way of seeing his performance where, but I think what, what um, Mears brings is his physicality to the role like there's an athleticism that has been missing for a long time so i like running jason like i love the fact when he comes sprinting with that axe during the cold open Mm -hmm. the audience i was at like they were like fuck this is all like they burst into applause when that happened um he looks a little bit like the batman villain hush early in the movie when you have like sackcloth jason and then he looks perfect in the mask and I do like that you have like because part two, Jason is a survivalist. He's been living in the woods in this in this, and they show what he's been living on and how he's been surviving. So you kind of go back to that, and then you see like I think the tunnel system makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's oh that's how he can surprise people. Like okay, that adds a little bit more 
to it over overall. I like how just brutal this Jason is. And there's that moment, like this, the scene where he is, I, I want to say it is, um, it's in the house when he has like the woman in a bear hug and they just show really close up on his eye. Mm, like there's something yes. like, oh, I don't want to say that he's enjoying it in that moment, but there's something almost like orgasmic in that moment. Like when he's killing off, I think it's Brie. Mm. Um, you see that he's like getting a, a pleasure in it. Um, that's usually not there. Like typically like Richard Brooker in part three, like I've described him as like Jason that like has suburban dad energy. Like all he wants to do is like drink beer and watch football. And these goddamn kids keep like coming to <laughs> camp crystal Lake. And he has a, and same with Kane Hodder, like Kane Hodder is like, I just want to like watch the ball game. Why do I have to keep taking out the trash? You know, like where this one is a much more, proactive like just awesome like force of nature and i think force of nature is usually the the descriptor that kind of goes with jason Mm -hmm. and i like that there's a there's a method behind the the madness a reason why the person is doing the thing although while i may find that a lack of a reason may make it may make it scarier like say michael myers he kills because because um you know having uh kind of a force of nature character like jason and not being able to pinpoint exactly why he's killing but being able Mm -hmm. to get a sense like through again through the character through the physicality if not necessarily through the script i think is is really smart and i think another thing that mirrors brings to the character yeah that's a good call i wish they even mentioned in dialogue i think the old lady says like she's he just wants to be left alone Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and then they keep they keep coming onto his property looking for weed. He just wants to be left alone, guys. Yeah, and Jason I, going into hydroponics is definitely a choice. Yeah, I that was interesting. I, obviously, you get the sense that the first group of kids planted it, and then they go back to harvest, and Jason finds and kills them. Mm-hmm. And then you get the 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 I don't know the the guy in the barn. I I don't know really what to call farmer question mark mm-hmm. uh who finds it and is is now selling it on his behalf and then of course jason kills him as well um and i don't know i just i find that whole thing very funny uh just the, the whole weed element of this movie uh that is picked up and then almost almost immediately dropped again uh i i find that really amusing yeah that i agree that guy is weird by the way can we discuss that guy i'm like a some sort of sexual relations with a mannequin. What was that about? Was that really necessary? I, I think that's one of those things in this era where you're like, we've got to push this a little outside the bounds of what makes people comfortable kind of things. And and sex with inanimate objects, hey, that that's going to make people pretty uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think it's funny. He's like using a hustler in 2000 nine it's like oh man you know Pornhub is up and running by then it's like it's all right man you don't need to go to sticky pages anymore you know, I know wireless signal out in that part of the country is probably not maybe good. probably not maybe i don't know and i think like that again like on the page i think that character could pop mm-hmm. but i think it comes down to like nispel's direction in the tone of the movie where that character just feels like really weird and scummy. I think that was meant to be like, because there are characters like that. And like, he has that line, like you almost press a start button and a whoop ass, can a whoop ass my friend. And I'm like, 
that's good. You know, like that made me laugh. Um, yeah. There are characters like that throughout the Friday the 13th movies that I think if you hit the right tone, that character pops a bit more. I think also like when you look at him, you're like, oh, I just feel dirty. Like that guy just feels like just you could almost like taste the stink, you know, when you saw mm-hmm. him. And I don't know, just it didn't it didn't quite work for me because of that. It feels like Nispel's, uh at least kind of maybe aesthetic choices for this movie uh, are borrowing a lot from Rob Zombie um, and his, some of his uh, like House of a Thousand Corpses and um, like some of some of his non Halloween films like that kind of uh, that hillbilly gore kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I feel like like for whatever reason, the look of this movie, I think, is owes a lot to that. And. I don't know. I don't per- that that's not particularly my aesthetic. That's not really something that I enjoy. Um, so I, I don't know that that part of that and that look. And I think this character plays a lot into that uh, kind of rubbed me the wrong way and, and lessened my enjoyment of this movie. Mm-hmm. I, like I said, I think it's it's a strong entry in the franchise. And I think it's uh, probably uh, some some elements of this, I think, are better than any other film in the franchise. Mm-hmm. But in other ways, I I think there's a lot missing that separates this from other films in the franchise personally yeah. agreed all right so friday the 13th opens on friday february 13th 2009 it's it's always nice to have uh an opening day like set aside for mm-hmm. these movies it's 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 a really nice thing opens number one that weekend and the day before valentine's day too in that case so it's even it's even better that's probably like mm-hmm. you take your date to it that's no wonder it opened at number one that's just making just printing money that's that is that's a smart decision is what it is absolutely i would agree with that it opens at number one it opens to 40 million dollars in its opening weekend uh it opens uh number one number two that week uh had been number one the week before is he's just not that into you starring my forever celebrity crush jennifer connelly uh, in number three, down from uh, number two the week before, in its third week is Taken, starring Liam Neeson. What if someone was taken? I would like to see uh, Liam Neeson's character from Taken go up against the Derek Mears Jason. I think that would be a fight. I would I would pay money to see that fight. I think that'd be I'd pretty, see fairly team up. Match. Why not team up? Hey, maybe there you Jason, go. Maybe Jason needs a father figure. Hey, you know, I think that that's what's missing in Jason. That's what's missing in the Jason arc. There we go. I think we supposed to be it. in part six, but you know, it was not used. Okay, I'm gonna put a pin in that because I want to come back to that. That's interesting. Let's do that. Okay, let's pick up that thread. Uh, uh, number four, uh, new this week: Confessions of a Shopaholic, and uh, closing out the top five is the Henry Selleck film Coraline, uh, which I thought was pretty good. It really was. I really like that one. Uh, rounding out the top 10, you've got Paul Blart, Mall Cop, The International, The Pink Panther 2, uh, Slumdog Millionaire, and the another thing we mentioned on last week's episode on The Losers, uh, the Chris Evans film Push, Ooh. Uh, which was uh, in its second week, it dropped from number six down to number 10. So you can kind of see why that one didn't get a franchise, but... Yes. Uh, the movie goes on to make so it makes uh, forty point five seven million in its opening week. It goes on to make sixty five million domestic. Uh, like Mike said, about an eighty five percent drop off from week one to week two. Um, international, it does another 
uh, 27.7 million uh, for a worldwide box office of about 92.6 million. So it doesn't quite get to a hundred worldwide. Uh, usually we we'd like to see it probably get at least a hundred uh, domestic before we start ripping those franchises off. But I don't know, this IP usually has enough juice that they would at least attempt to start talking about a sequel. And they mm-hmm. were, I think, attempting a sequel for a while. Mm-hmm. And I think the legal issues got involved and uh, did it, did I hear right? Did the, did the right slip from new line or does new line still have the, uh, the IP rights for, I don't know who has the rights now. And I think part of the trick of the box set was, you know, getting the rights for Paramount in new line, but I'm not sure where that stands at this point. Fair enough. Um, the, uh, tomatometer score for this one is a 26%. The critics consensus Though technically well-constructed, Friday the 13th is a series rehash that features little to distinguish it from its predecessors, which I both agree and disagree with, I think, on some level. I think, yes, there is enough to distinguish it, but by the same token, it's it's a lot of the same, too. Yeah. Uh, the meta score is 34, based on unfavorable reviews from uh, at least 29 critics. Mm-hmm. And the letterboxed average is 2.5. Mike, as our guest, how would you rate the Friday the 13th remake out of five stars? Yeah, two and a half, three stars. You know, I tend to be a little bit more generous. Um, I think most movies are three star movies. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's okay. It's kind of like right in the middle. I I will say that like the more I really liked this movie when I first saw it, like I really liked it. Um. The more I've rewatched it, because I have to rewatch it for our show, and I'll just pop it on every now and again, and then I rewatch it for this. Like I find less that I like about it outside of like Derek Mears' right. performance. But you know, I mean, it's not terrible. I can agree with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. Brett, what about you? Um, I'm I'm in the same boat. Where like the more I when I originally saw this movie, I thought I thought it was great. I thought mm-hmm. it was a great reinvention of the franchise. Um, but yeah, the more I watch it, the more I'm like, hey, man, you know, I don't like that now. I don't like that mm-hmm. now either. Uh, so it's, it's fallen to a three star for me. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, and I honestly, I, I feel kind of the same. Like the first time I saw it, I was like, and that was kind of watching it kind of after I had watched all of the previous entries in the franchise, all of the nightmare on Elm street movies. And I was like, this feels like a much more Friday the 13th kind of Friday the 13th than, than a lot of the ones I'd seen. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a three-star movie for me. Then this last time I was, it, it felt like it was missing something. And so I dropped it down to a 2.5 this time. Um, like it just, yeah, I, I think you guys are absolutely on the, on the nose. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there are things to like about this movie. Um, and ultimately I think it comes out as just fine. It's fine. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not great. It's not bad. It's fine. I look at what hit me today. Like I look at part six, Jason lives. And what's interesting about this movie, it's box office. The first day was like 19 million and change in its first day. It actually made more than the new blood did its whole run. Then mm. Jason Manhattan, then Jason goes to hell. Then Jason acts like it made more than all of those movies did their whole run in its first day out. Wow. And I think what hurt this movie, I look at Jason, um, Jason Lives Part 6, which I think that and the final chapter 
are considered like the two best entries in the series. And what mm-hmm. Tom McLaughlin did, who directed part six, is he really created like a meta horror comedy before a decade before Scream. He was actually offered Scream before Wes Craven. He was like, I've already done that with Jason Lives. Why would I do that movie again? It's funny. It kind of reinvents Jason. Like he's no longer the backwood survivalist. Now you get zombie Jason, Mm -hmm. but it's funny. It knows what it is. Like it has a much lighter tone. It could actually be like a PG-13 movie. Like there's no nudity in it. The kills are great, but not like super over the top. And I think that this movie needed that kind of tone. It needed to be a bit more self-referential. It needed to kind of like know, maybe give more of a nod to what had come before it. What this movie does, and I think what a lot of these Platinum Dune remakes do, is they try to act like there's never been another movie before it. The Elm Street remake just straight up recreates moments from Wes Craven's movie. Mm -hmm. And every time it happens, I'm not thinking like, whoa, what a cool update. I'm thinking I should be watching Wes Craven's on Nightmare on Elm Street. Why am I watching this? I'd much rather be watching that one than this one. Yeah. So I think like after this movie, like sinks like a stone. And again, I don't know if it's bad word of mouth. Or if it's just there's a limited audience for this movie and everybody that wanted to see it rushed out and saw it that first weekend. It might be a little bit of both, honestly. But, you know, I think that freaked Platinum Dunes out. And that's why we don't, they start to overthink, like, what does a sequel need to be? And you have like, what if we do found footage, Jason? Because found footage is hot. Why God, that would have been terrible. No, I don't Um, want that. Jason in the snow, which like, yes, give me Jason in the snow. Um, But all of these ideas get kicked around and kicked around and there's no movement. And then the lawsuit happens. And now we're in this really crappy limbo. Yeah. Which if you do want to see Jason in the woods, there was that fan film. Yes. uh, Yeah. Never hike alone. Yeah. Never hike alone. They made a sequel. I believe that where he's never hike in the snow. There you go. Which is part one of like a longer web series um, from Vincent DeSanti. Uh, you can see them free on YouTube. Never Hike Alone, I would say, would, as a Friday the 13th movie, would sit in like the top third of the series just on its own. Like it's wow. strong. It's, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's very good. Can confirm. I'll have to check those out. Oh, yeah. Very cool. So, Mike, you were, you were talking a little bit about part six, Jason's father. Mm -hmm. I need to hear more about this. Sure. So the original script, like, so in part six, there's like a, um, uh, grave taker, basically a cemetery worker. And he has the, um, great line, you know, where he's like, what do you think I am? A big doo-doo head. And then it immediately cuts to a bunch of kids going, yes. And it's like (laughs) phenomenal. Um, in the original script, and I believe it's in the novelization, like he is Elias Voorhees. He is Jason's father. And he's been watching over the grave and like um, tending to it. And it was supposed to be a whole subplot, but that was then kind of cut from the movie. But I believe the character of Elias Voorhees like comes up in the subsequent like Friday the 13th novels that are out so it's a kind of a great like what if like what if you know we got to meet jason's father so you know he's not in any of the movies um but yeah 
Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. That is, that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of fascinating, Mike Snoonian. Mm-hmm. man you're just the guest of guests we we do we love having you on man oh thank you thank you so much for coming on I, I always learn a lot um from not just having you on the show but from listening to your podcast as well um i'm a big fan of of both the pod and the pendulum and mm-hmm. the psychoanalysis tell us a little bit more about those podcasts what other work you sure. do, where we can find you so i um am a, fortunate enough to be the co-host of two podcast um that are focused on horror movies uh we uh 2019 uh we started the pod on the pendulum which i currently co-host with Lindsay travis who is brilliant um and that is a we focus on franchises so our early shows we got like halloween scream friday the 13th a nightmare on elm street uh we covered a lot of those you know, kind of big iconic franchises right away uh, because why not Um, go big or go home. And we're currently doing like the conjuring series. We did the evil dead earlier this year. And it's just like, you know, we have guests on every week, like Steven, you've been on a couple of times. We've absolutely absolute pleasure having you on for our army of darkness and the nun episodes. Um, and yeah, we like go into like the background of the movies, the context of where they sit in that day, um, the themes of the movies, and you know, just kind of like very loosely structured. It's a lot of fun to talk about them. Uh, you can find the pod and the pendulum everywhere you get your podcast. I also, like the other show I do um, is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast, who, which um, I co-host with Jen Adams uh, of the Losers Club and formerly the Horror Virgin and Laura Undersall of um, Halloweenies, who's guested on there a number of times. Um, And that is one where, you know, I'm a practicing therapist. I have a license in mental health counseling and school adjustment counseling. That's my job. I love talking about mental health. Um, I love talking about mental health in the context of horror movies. Um, what's been interesting during this pandemic is how there have been a number of studies that show like persons that enjoy horror movies tend to be a little bit less anxious or at least better equipped to handle their anxiety. And they've been able to handle like the stressors of the pandemic at a slightly better le- level than the average person. Um and there are reasons for that. There are reasons how horror, ta- like how horror movies make one look at anxiety or tap into our anxieties that give us some coping skills and mechanisms. So psychoanalysis, every month we pick a topic. We've done narcissism, grief, depression, schizophrenia. Um, we're currently doing like the ravages of early parenthood and the mental health challenges they pa- create. And we pair those with um, two movies. So every other week we do a different movie. So we, um, or this month we're doing with bad parent or, or the stressors of new parenthood, we're doing Prevenge and Bloodline. Um, we also, in between those episodes, do comfort horror episodes where a guest comes on, brings any movie they want to the table and talks about how that movie brings them like comfort and joy. And we take like a very, I would like to say like an academic in approach to what we do. Like we use peer reviewed materials. Um, you know, we're not, this is going to not earn me fans. 
nothing gets under my skin more than when I read something online like, oh, I have un- undiagnosed ADHD. It's like, then you mm-hmm. don't have ADHD. Right. Go see someone that can diagnose this and get you help, please. Yeah. Um, we try to take the review, like we try to research everything we do and draw on our own experiences and examine how that mental health topic is portrayed in those movies. And that has been a real joy to do. That is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast. We have Patreon pages for both shows because I need your money. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there you go. Got to have that money to feed your podcast habit. Got to. I mean, you guys know, like, it's not a lot of time and energy goes into creating an episode. Mm-hmm. And what's happened with podcasts and the especially during the pandemic, a lot of celebrities or actors or performers with nothing to do are like, Oh, I'll just do this. It's easy. And they have a yeah. team behind them that can market it. They have a team behind them that can edit it and put shows and book guests and do all the research. And you and I, we don't have that. It is us doing it. Yeah. Um, so, and it can be very easy to get lost in the shuffle. So when someone kicks in a few bucks to anyone's show, it goes a long way to kind of keeping the lights on and keeping it going. Absolutely. Uh, where can we find you on social media? Where can we find your, your shows on social media as well? So you can find um, me on Twitter at Mike underscore Snoonian. You can find the pod and the pendulum. We have a Facebook group, facebook.com pod and the pendulum. You can also find us on Twitter at pod and penned and then psychoanalysis a horror therapy podcast we have a facebook group it's moderated really nice community and then on twitter at psycho a pod um those where you can find our shows i believe we have an instagram um for psychoanalysis and i need to start one for the other show yeah i keep i keep wanting to tag pod and the pendulum and stuff and i just i had just have to hashtag you because yep. you don't have an instagram page yet, yeah so. we gotta start one because people like i know like i got I, this woman i know i have fifteen thousand followers and i'm like holy shit that yeah. is a lot of people we don't have that many uh, i think our our big victory came on twitter uh, a couple weeks ago when i realized that we are uh, following fewer people than follow us which there for me go. is always the like the success That's rate a victory absolutely I'll, I'll take that that sounds good mm-hmm. to me um mike it it is such a pleasure to have you on it's always great to talk to you thank you so much for agreeing to come out and do this it's a pleasure to come on. I really enjoy talking with you guys and it is a fun show and a fascinating topic to look at why these things didn't go anywhere. I, I, it's, I never, never ceases to amaze yeah. me for sure. And we, we've actually already got your next appearance on the books. So really? We what do. am I doing next? Uh, well, well, you have to come back in February to do the, the, the remake of my bloody Valentine. We did, did the that, original. Though, didn't we? No, no you're right. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, we've got to do the remake. Next. All right. So, so we we've already got you on the books for February. You just right. didn't know it. Um, but now now we've got you committed. Now we've got you locked Perfect. in. So, yep. Excellent. So we, Mike will be back. Don't even worry about it. Uh, as for us, you can find us on all your social media, at least your your Twitter, your Facebook, and your Instagram. Also, your letterboxed at disenfranch pod on all of those platforms. Uh, you can find, oh, you can email us, uh, disenfranchpod at gmail.com. Uh, let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what failed franchise starters you want us to cover. Uh, we've got this year 
pretty much in the bag unless something terrible changes, but 2022 is looking wide open right now. So please let us know what you want to hear. Um, if you have the, the will and the wherewithal, we would sure appreciate a five-star rating and review on your podcatcher of choice, especially if that is Apple podcasts. And if you leave in your review an episode you would like for us to do, we will be sure to rush that one into production faster uh, than just about anything else. Uh, I am Stephen Foxworthy. I'm one of your hosts. I can be found on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Chewy Walrus. My co-host, Brett Wright, where can we find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on uh, Instagram and Letterboxd, maybe Twitter soon. We'll see. Uh, at sus underscore warlock. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that just about wraps it up for Friday the 13th. So for our special guest, Mike Snoonian, my co-host, Brett Wright, and myself, happy hunting. A messenger of God. You're doomed if you stay. You're all doomed. Your heart's beating faster. Your blood runs cold.